You're listening to the Philip Robertson Property Podcast. Well, welcome everybody to episode number two, and it's called Before You Spend Your Dough, Here's What You Need to Know. So today's episode is all about the action steps that you should follow. And let me tell you, it could literally save you thousands of dollars. And please don't think that I'm arrogant in saying that, but I have just seen the what I would suggest is the good, the bad, and the ugly of buying investment property over almost 20 years in the industry. So basically, to put it bluntly, I just want to help you avoid wasting your dough and buy an investment property on emotion rather than I'd actually like you to make well-researched, rational decisions so you won't be disappointed by your investment choices later on. Now, what I'm sharing with you came about as a result of my experiences, both as a mortgage broker, which was almost 19 years, and also where I settled as a broker, I reckon at least hundreds of investment property purchases over that time. Now, in my role as a broker, I can tell you I was able to see uh, firsthand the impact of the different types of investment property purchase decisions that were made by my investment clients. And these produced a range of outcomes. Now, look, I've got to say, some were outstanding, but others, unfortunately, they ended in, in tears. And secondly, from my time as an investment property consultant where for some 10 years I sold off the property, off the plan uh, properties to investment clients. Now, what I want to share with you first off is an understanding of what makes a good investment and the factors that influence that. See, purchasing an investment property, it should be about the numbers and only the numbers. There's no room for getting emotionally attached to the property. You shouldn't be influenced by whether you like the area or whether you'd live in the property yourself. Your primary consideration, unless you're buying for cash flow only, should be for future capital growth. Now, too often when I'd meet clients in my past role as a broker, they'd tell me they were looking to buy an investment property and I'd ask, yeah, where? More often than not, it really was going to be fairly local, like like basically not far from where they lived, or if they were going to be a little bit more adventurous than somewhere else in their, in their state. Now, their rationale was that, hey, I can drive past it, I can keep an eye on it, or perhaps if it ever needs any work, I can do the work, any maintenance required on the property. So buying should not be about your comfort zone. So please put aside your emotions for justifying your buying. And so what I've done for you, I've got a guide, a checklist in effect of what I think are the specific fundamentals to make sure that that property that you purchase is going to stack up. So let me start. So infrastructure and amenities. So supply and demand typically is influenced by the availability and proximity of infrastructure and amenities. Now, what do I mean? So these include things like access to employment, uh, schools, shopping centres, public transport, uh, hospitals, and other social services. Now, the better located a property is in terms of its proximity to these, the more likely it's going to be considered to be, quote unquote, a desired location. So not only for renters, but also for owner-occupiers. Now, on the flip side, though, If a property is not close to public transport, 
and that there's little employment in the area and schools are few or far away uh, and hospitals and medical facilities aren't nearby, well, of course, it makes sense that it's less likelihood that the property is going to be then in a desirable area and therefore less likely that there's going to be strong demand for it. One of my absolute keys for always, I'm going to repeat this, is do your research. Research, research, research. You need to know your numbers. So look for areas where rents are high compared to the property's value. Vacancy rates is another clue. Find out what the vacancy rates are in that area. Low vacancy rates is a good indicator always that the area is well sought after by tenants and by owner-occupiers. Now, planning. So you should find out about any proposed changes in the suburb uh, that may potentially affect future property values, any new developments or zoning changes. These all can have an impact on the worth of a property down the track. Now, what should you be actually looking for in a potential investment property? So when it comes to the actual property, here are some, some things that I reckon you should check out. So I would be looking at things like, hey, does that property have a second bathroom? Is there a lock-up garage? Does it have security system? Is there off-street parking? Um, does the house have good storage? Is there heating and air conditioning? And trust me, having lived in a, in a hot box uh, in summer, you don't want your tenants sweltering. And conversely, in winter, you don't want your tenants to be cold. So these are always going to be things that are important to renters. Now, maintenance. Is the property going to be low maintenance for your tenant and for you as the owner. You don't want to have to be keeping on putting your hand in your pocket continually. And I can bet your tenant isn't, in most cases, not going to want to be out there at weekends mowing the lawn regularly and having to do the gardening and the weeding. So as an investor, you should aim to keep your costs for maintenance down as low as possible. Now, an opportunity around that thought is, well, what about a courtyard or a grassed area can be attractive? Remember, a newer property will have less maintenance, whereas, an, say, an older home, well, that's going to require potentially more repairs over time. Now, note, I'm not suggesting, though, that a newer property is necessarily better than an older one, apart from the depreciation, but there may be some sound reasons to purchase an older style house. But I'm saying just to be aware of these things before you commit to a contract. Now, subdivision, assessment prior to purchase. So does the property have potential for a future subdivision? Some investors want to know the highest and best use of that land. There may be potential to, say, add another dwelling at the rear, or maybe more. If you are looking for such a property, a town planning assessment by a town planning consultant may prove valuable if you're wanting a property that could add value to you now or down the track. Know what you're buying. Sounds simple though, know what you're buying. Whatever property you decide to purchase, it's always important to get a building inspection, a pest inspection, and potentially an independent sworn valuation not to be confused with a market appraisal from a real estate agent. You want to know what the vendor is asking for the property is fair. Is it based on comparable sales in the area? And a sworn valuation is going to give you an unbiased analysis of local real estate prices. Now, a pest inspection, 
We'll let you know if you've got a property that may have had termite or other vermin in the property. You may also want to know about whether the property has, quote unquote, good real estate bones. Namely, is the property structurally sound? Now, you're going to find that there are some issues with a property that this may actually provide leverage. Knowing these answers may provide you some leverage in negotiating on price. And the inspections prior to purchase, as I said, you know, potentially you're going to actually be able to work out whether the uh, these estimates are in line with the market based on having this information on a build and pest inspection and an independent valuation. Now, the other thing I wanted, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is and share with you is learn based on history the types of properties to avoid and where not to buy. I repeat, where not to buy. So high-rise apartments. Okay, so remember earlier I said that a key consideration in buying a property is supply and demand. So basically I'm referring to the scarcity of the property. Is the property unique in some way? So when investing, buying an apartment in a high-rise building is unlikely to give you a positive outcome if your goal is capital growth. Now, time and time again, I have seen investors lose out on these types of properties. And why are these properties a poor choice for investing? Well, it's pretty simple, really. There's just too many of them. There's no scarcity of supply, and there's just too much competition for tenants, particularly if you're buying a property off the plan, which I'll come to shortly. So if it's a new building, you, what you find is inevitably there's going to be some purchasers when it comes to settlement who are quite desperate to get a tenant into their property. And this usually means new owners, unfortunately, have to drop their rent to compete or just to get their property rented out. I don't know about you, but ouch, that's not a good outcome for you. The other thing about apartments is there are high holding costs for you as an owner. In high-rise buildings, if you think about it, typically they're going to have lifts, common areas, perhaps a gym, a library, sometimes gardens. All of these add up to your holding costs increasing, and it's going to show up in your body corporate fees. And it's easily... Uh, Numbers can be in body corporate costs anywhere from $1,500 to, say, $3,500 a year. And in fact, for some buildings, depending on the amenities, it can in fact be even higher. So it's really important to check your contract before you buy so you know what these costs are going to be. You don't want any surprises. These costs, the other thing these costs actually can do is it'll add additional pressure on you as the owner in having to cover this, meaning that potentially there's going to be a shortfall from the rent. So be prepared to be putting your hand in your pocket to cover this difference. Another property style that I've seen over the years that hasn't worked for investors is student accommodation. So these are typically one-bedroom bedsitters uh, rented out usually, say, to university students. Yeah, they'll give you a great rental return and some depreciation. But hey, if you're looking for capital growth, I reckon forget it. There really isn't any other thing to be aware of or really be noting that there isn't a secondary market for resale. So if you're looking to eventually become a seller, I reckon you could be in for a rude shock and you may have to sell your property at a loss. So I would say caution you here with buyer beware. If you have no intention of ever selling the property and say you're looking you know, just for a great rental return, hey, then maybe this is a property that you should throw in the mix as considerating, a consideration rather for your property portfolio. 
Another style of property that I'm not a fan of is service departments. So a service department, it might seem like a good idea, but please do your homework first. I have seen buyers get caught up in the idea of being able to stay in their property once a year uh, for a holiday. And, And whilst that might sound enticing, you really need to understand what you're getting yourself into. Now, for a start, banks, lenders, they don't tend to like them. And if it is a resort style property, well, you're going to be required to have a much larger deposit. Typically, banks will only lend somewhere around 50 to 60% of the value of that property or what we call the loan to value ratio. Now, also be aware that if the property comes with a furniture pack, so uh, the seller provides you with furniture, the bank's not going to lend against the value of that furniture. So you need to account for that also in doing your numbers. Now, the other things banks don't like about service departments is the long leases. Typically, when buying such a property like this, you could be buying on a five by five by five by five by five. That's 25, by the way, making it 25 years, making it hard to sell. So from a bank's point of view, if you were to default and they get stuck with the property, uh, they're not necessarily going to be able to sell it either. And let me tell you, they're not in real estate. They're in lending money. So traditionally, banks aren't that keen on service departments. Now, I also want you to be aware of rental returns. I've certainly heard of instances where rent to the owner over time has either stalled or in fact actually decreased over time. So as always, if you are still attracted to this type of investment, look, just please do your homework thoroughly. Now, capital growth with these properties, these service departments can be somewhat limited because they can only be resold to investors. So therefore your market for resale is really only going to appeal to those looking for this specific type of investment. So when you buy a service department, if there is a management rights in place, as there is with most apartment buildings, particularly in Queensland, then you are going to be really reliant on the performance of the service department's management team. So whilst the guarantee of a regular ongoing income is attractive, But if the property is not well managed, this could really impact your return. And also just make sure that the rental return offered to you is, quote unquote, after costs. For example, a 6% return could easily become 4% if maintenance and management fees haven't been taken out. And look, the other thing is, and particularly right now with what's going on with COVID, as we've seen time and time again, you are also exposed to the ups and downs of the tourism and business accommodation markets now more than ever. Now, another type of property that I would really caution you about buying is in mining towns. You've probably heard the saying, what goes up must come down. And this definitely applies to investing in mining towns. The key, though, it's all about timing. Now, these can be a great investment if you get in early enough, namely, say, when a new mine is under construction. This is usually a time when there's limited choice, uh, say, for workers to secure accommodation. The workers are usually FIFO, so they fly in, fly out. They're on great money. And it's not uncommon for properties to rent for upwards of $800 a week. And housing, well, if you want to buy, uh, it's quite possible that you're going to be spending, believe it, for a modest four-bedroom home in the middle of nowhere up to a million dollars. Now, here's where it gets tricky. So when the mine or project is either finished or there may have been a decrease in demand for that, say, mineral or resource uh, or returns, 
for whatever is being mined, then quite quickly supply can outstrip demand. And these properties, I can say, can go into free fall with rents and property values dropping really quickly. Now, an example of this of is Gladstone. It was the darling of the investment ma- uh, magazines uh, and it was predicted to absolutely uh, skyrocket and they were talked about having a really, really great population post the gas pipeline construction being completed. But look, during the, re- uh, the construction, rents were over $650 a week. But by the time the gas pipes uh, was completed, Rents went into free fall because those workers actually didn't stay like they thought and ended up moving back to onto the next job and rents fell down to around $250 a week and valuations, well, values of properties dropped at least 30%. So unless you can confidently pick the top or the bottom of these markets, I'd recommend you stay clear of this style of investment. It looked Really, it will be a financial and emotional roller coaster, and it's roller coaster rather. I just reckon it's one you don't need. Now, the next style of property I wanted to talk to you about today is off-market purchases. Now, how do they work? And in fact, do they work? So this is where some developers sell their stock through what are called channels. And the sector is known as channel marketing sales or third-party sales. Now, these properties are usually sold by uh, what we call channel marketing companies, and they specialise in selling off-market properties. Now, what is an off-market property? Well, it's one basically that's not being offered to the general public, so you're not going to see it advertised on the internet or on real estate sites. Now, off-the-plan sales, many, in fact, are off-market properties, and they sell these off-the-plan properties, meaning that the property is not yet built, or the property may be under construction. Now, the attraction to the investor is you pay a deposit, usually around about 10% of the contract price, and you settle later. So that might be in a year or two from the contract date. Now, from a cash flow perspective, that might be attractive to you as a buyer, but I've got to say, beware. The problem here is that there is no way really of checking the quality of the build. Sure, you might cross-reference other projects that that developer might have done, but the development, this particular one, really until it's completed, and by that stage, it just might be too late for you. Now, as a buyer, yes, you'll be given the opportunity to do a pre-settlement inspection, but be careful because once that plan of subdivision has been registered, unless you've got it written into the contract, you may well be called on to settle within 14 days. And uh, let me say, with banks, particularly uh, bank turnarounds can be quite slow, uh, that doesn't leave you a lot of time to get any defects repaired. And certainly, it can put your financier and your broker under a lot of pressure, and you as well, to meet that settlement deadline. So another thing to be wary of, it's not uncommon for a developer to call for settlement, and you could be forced to settle even before all defects have been rectified. And I've certainly seen situations where people have tried to dig in their heels about not settling until the defects are sorted out. But please get your legal practitioner to check the contract because you may be forced to settle before some of the items are rectified and that is quite within the contract uh, for the developer. So again, yep, always check with your legal representative. The other issue then 
is failing to settle on time could result in penalty interest. And let me say, that can quickly add up. I mean, penalty interest, it's not uncommon for 14% of the contract price annualised to be charged. And look, before you know, it can easily run into hundreds. And I've seen instances where people have been charged two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 in penalty interest, usually through no fault of their own, but they weren't able to settle on time. And that's a, that's a real, not a great way to, to kick off the, uh, the start of a new investment. Now, the other issue, particularly with these off-the-plan purchases, and if it's in a larger development, well, I've got to say, uh, just be aware of, if you're renting out your new property, please get an independent rental appraisal. Don't rely on one from the selling or marketing agent. They often tend to be on the higher side of what's achievable. And as I was about to say, competition for tenants. Wow, if you've bought in a housing estate or a townhouse development or an apartment building, well, think about it logically. When it comes time to settle, you are now competing with all the other buyers who are looking for a tenant too. And it's not uncommon for some owners to be forced to drop their rent just to secure a tenant because of the increased amount of competition at this time. Now, the other thing to be concerned about or be aware of is valuations. Many off-market and uh, off-the-plan purchases, well, they simply don't stack up. And at least that's what the bank's valuers think. So you've just got to be very aware that they are across the fact that large sales commissions are being offered to introducers and referrers. And it's not uncommon for these properties when it comes to settlement for them to be valued easily up to 10% below the purchase price. Now, so let me share with you, here's how the numbers would work if you bought one of these properties that had a low ball valuation. So let's just say you bought, say, and let's say for $450,000, and the bank's valuer says, we valued the property at $405,000. Well, the bank or lender is not going to lend you against your purchase price of four fifty. dollars They're actually going to lend you against the $405,000 valuation. Now, if you were planning to borrow, in your maths, 90% of the original contract price, which was $450,000, you better think again. Because now, because your val came in at $405,000, the bank's only going to lend you 90% of the $405,000, which is a possible $364,500, which was 90% of the bank's val. Now, that means you've now got to go and find another $40,500 to settle. Hey, but what if you haven't got that money? You can see how this can cause your massive stress. So just be aware of what can happen before you commit to an off-the-plan purchase. Now, the next thing I want to share with you today is how can you take advantage of a property downturn to access some of these great deals that people talk about? Okay, well, what can happen is developers get stuck with stock that maybe the property uh, was sold but maybe a buyer can't settle due to a change in their purchase uh, circumstances, their personal circumstances. The person might have lost a job, their income might have gone down, hey, they might be impacted by COVID, and now they're on job seeker, or uh, they've had their hours uh, reduced. So if you've got your finance approved already, or you are a cashed up buyer, then you might be able to negotiate from a position of strength. So particularly, if that developer has exposure to banks and or private funders. The last thing the developer wants is to be paying huge penalties for failing to settle. 
So you may well have a very motivated seller, being the developer, who, and you, look, I've seen situations where people go in with a lowball offer and they may just accept that because the penalty interest to them is chewing its head off. So you might be actually doing them a favour as well. Another thing to be thinking about, if the deal seems too good to be true, well, there's a reason for that saying, and there's often a good reason why that property might not have sold. So again, if you're looking at a property that's potentially at a, a lower price relative to others, make sure you know exactly where that property is located in the development, particularly if you haven't seen the property. So you don't want to be buying a heavily discounted house in an estate, for example, uh, that sits under power lines. I was, at, I was out uh, looking at a, an inspection of a property one time. And, I, and the price was actually about $20,000 lower than all the others in the estate. And I thought, this is, sounds great. So I drove to the estate and, ah, sitting under power lines, of course. Well, guess what? We passed on that one. So the other thing to think about is, you know, is the block, the actual land, is it an odd shape? Does that mean, therefore, that a lot of that backyard is hardly usable? So you may find that it's going to be really difficult in that situation to get a good tenant and actually get good rent. Lifts in a building. So think about that. Just make sure if the property is in a building that it's not near the lifts or sitting over the garage door if there's parking underneath the building. I mean, the noise from lifts or a garage constantly opening and closing, they can just absolutely drive a tenant nuts. And you're going to find that it potentially could be really hard to hold tenants uh, in your property. Now, the next thing I want to talk to you about today is actually some of the different types of residential investments. And we hear the term a lot, negative gearing and positive cash flow. So what do these things mean? So for some time now, negative gearing has been all the rage. But just, you know, I guess my question is, well, what is all the fuss about? So here's how it works. Negative gearing is where you borrow money to invest in a property and the income from the property is less than the expenses. So in other words, the money you've got coming in is less than what's actually going out. So for example, where the rental income is less than the interest and other expenses. Now essentially, on paper this means, and in your bank by the way, it means you're making a loss. Now many investors were attracted to this because that loss can be offset against their taxable income and reduce the amount of tax they've got to give the government. On the other hand, positive gearing, well, that's where you borrow money to invest and the income you've got from your investment property is actually higher than any interest and operating expenses. So, But just remember, this means that you're going to have extra money left over at the end of each month, but you're going to have to pay tax on that additional income. Now, positively geared properties also, though, they can give you an ongoing income and uh, the property, uh, likely if that capital gain on the property is increased in value when you sell. But the other good thing about a positively geared property is you've got a mortgage, you can take that excess uh, uh, rental income and if you're paying P&I, principal and interest, you can actually help uh, by amortise the loan, meaning you're paying it down and every time you're paying down the loan, you're de-risking that property investment. Now, the next thing I want to talk to you about today was actually your dream team. So you, before you run out and buy that property, I reckon it's really important to get your dream team in place. And so who should be on a dream team? Well, I reckon it's really, really important to have a good mortgage broker. Now, that person, they're going to help you work out just how much you can borrow, and they're going to explain to you the types of loans available to you as an investor. They'll also do the running around for you. They're going to help you find the, the right deal. I didn't say the best deal, but it's the right deal. 
Uh, a good broker will work with you and your accountant on the options on how best to structure the loan from a tax perspective. And if you're going to buy multiple properties over time, then this is going to be a person that's going to be very important to you to optimise how much you can potentially borrow over the long term. Now, an accountant is critical, and definitely I reckon you want to have a good accountant in your corner, but preferably one that's also an investor themselves. I'm a great believer in it's not just about people talking the talk, they've got to walk the walk. Now, buying that property, though, remembering it's much more than just about borrowing money. It's knowing, and this is where the accountant's critical, knowing about what entity or buying structure to purchase the property in. So for example, the property, should it be in your personal name? Should it be in a trust? If so, what type of trust? A family trust, discretionary trust, hyper trust? Should it be in a company, etc., etc. Lots of pluses and, and minuses with all of these. And it's going to be really important to understand what is the right purchasing entity for your personal situation. You may also want to discuss with your accountant is should you have an asset protection strategy in place so that the property is not at risk if anyone were to uh, take legal action against you personally? And quite frankly, it's not uncommon for company directors, for example, to have a property in their spouse's name for such asset protection. So as always, seek professional advice from your financial advisor or your accountant. Really think a very important person in your dream team is your legal practitioner. An excellent conveyancer or lawyer is another critical member of the team. They're going to go through the uh, contract with a fine tooth comb prior to your purchasing just to make sure everything's uh, in line and in order with the contract. And in fact, I remember a time a number of years ago when I was about to buy a property and my lawyer pointed out we were reviewing the Section 32 or rather he was, and he pointed out, he said, well, the property that you're looking to buy, Phil, that's been listed in the contract of sale, they've actually got the wrong uh, volume and folio number. So it was actually one of three townhouses and, and potentially I could have been buying the wrong property. So always good. A good legal person will do their searches. They want to make sure for you that everything is in order with that prospective property. And they may also recommend what's called title insurance. So if there are issues, say, with incorrect boundaries, you're protected uh, against any potential legal dispute in the future. And they can also tell you if there's any encumbrances on the property, such as a caveat, which would need to be removed prior to settlement. Now, a town plan is also an important part of your dream team. So if you're looking for a property, say, that you could add value to, then a good town planner is a must. A pre-purchase analysis on the property, say for subdivision potential, is going to tell you whether or not you could add additional dwellings to that site and what is the highest and best use for the land. And you might find it's worth paying a little more for the property to potentially knock out any of your competition if you intend to subsidise the property now or at a later date. I also think a building inspector is a good person to have on your dream team. So if you're buying, say, an established dwelling in particular, I definitely would recommend getting a building inspection. You know, you want to know whether the property has got, again, I'll use that term, good real estate bones. The last thing you want to do is purchase a property that's got structural issues that could end up costing you thousands of dollars in repairs. So you might find you still want to buy that same property, but being aware of any issues with the property, well, it may give you some more leverage when it comes to negotiating the deal with the vendor. I reckon a pest inspector, another part of your dream team. Like the building inspector, you want a good pest inspector so that there's no issues that you uh, get surprises from, say, termite infestation or other vermin that could wreak havoc with your property. 
once you've got your tenants in there. Now, there's also, this is one that I'm so, so passionate about, and that is the importance of independent research. So when you're looking at, for a property, make sure the research you rely on to make an informed decision, I'm going to say, quote, unquote, is truly independent. You see, you might be provided with research or marketing information from the agent or the sales uh, selling representative or evidence or research that supports why this suburb or property is a good buy. But remember the words of the great Henry Ford who said, uh, when asked about his Model T Ford and someone asked him, hey, what colour can I have it in? And he said, you can have any colour you want as long as it's black. So, in other words, remember, you should always ask yourself this question, who is paying the person selling you that property? So, in terms of independent research, there's some great sources for you out in the marketplace, such as local government websites, uh, investment magazines and books, newspapers online, ASIC's Money Smart website, so that's um, uh, moneysmart.gov.au. There's buyer's agents, and there's obviously research that you can subscribe to as well. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about today is what I call the holy grail of property investing. And what in the heck do I mean by the holy grail of property investing? No, this is not some quest, but it is a quest in effect to find the right style of property. And that for me firstly ticks a box called affordability. So I talk about this term when I look at the key components of an investment property purchase. So when we think of buying a property, we want to identify properties that are affordable and within our budget. Rental and rental yield, return on our investment, return on our funds. We ideally want to have a property that gives you the maximum rental for the lowest price. Now, as a rule of thumb, the more you spend on a property, the lower the rental return's going to be. And the final part of the holy grail of property investing is, of course, capital growth. So when you buy a property, it's usually because that property has potential to increase in value over time, or at least you hope it's going to increase in value. Now, here's the dilemma, though. You see, in most investment property circles, people will tell you, oh, you can usually have one or the other, i.e. you can have capital growth or a strong return, but not both, and certainly not all three. And I thought, look, what I'd do is I'd share with you some examples of some property uh, suburbs that I looked up online. So over the last 12 months, if you take New South Wales and you take Sydney, so the lowest priced property uh, suburb was Tregear, medium price 434,734 thousand, rental return 4.8%, but here's the kicker, capital growth negative 16.1%. If we go to Melbourne and Victoria, Melton, lowest price suburb, was Melton at $389,180. Rental return, same, 4.8%. Capital growth, negative, 6.1%. And if I go stay on the eastern seaboard and I go to Queensland and Brisbane, Bundampa, median price, 330000 Rental return, better, sure, 5.6%, but negative capital growth of 2.69%. Okay, so then, well, does this grail really exist? So then what I've done is I've looked at some other examples of cities from Victoria, Queensland, and Tasmania that tick all the boxes that I believe make up this grail. Now, these are actual results during the last 12 months. And remembering the Holy Grail consists of affordable properties, and all these examples 
are all under $300,000. They've got strong rental yields. All of these properties have returns over 6%, and all of these properties have capital growth, solid growth, when remembering that much of Australia was actually going down. Sydney and Melbourne were going backwards. So can you have it all? Can you have win, win, win? I reckon you can. And these examples here, I'm going to share with you right now. So in Portland, in Western Victoria, median price, $255,000 on a rental return at 6.1%, and it had capital growth of 11.91%. Moi, in Eastern Victoria, median price, $210,000, rental return, 6.4%, capital growth, a whopping 12% in the last 12 months. Let's get, uh, let's head up to Queensland, Cranbrook. At a median price, 260000 rental return, 6.3%, capital growth, 9%. Now let's go down south to the Apple Isle into Tassie. Tasmania, Bridgewater, median price, 245000 rental return, a beauty at 7%, and its capital growth, double-digit figure, 10%. Now, remember, the key with all of these particular areas, they are strong local economies. I'll repeat that. They have strong local economies. And I can tell you and share with you that there are hundreds of examples just like this around Australia that tick these three boxes of the holy grail of property investing. Here's the key. You just got to know where to find them. And it's all about research. So over the coming weeks, I'm going to share lots more information on this very topic with you. I'm going to provide you with the expertise and the knowledge how you can access these properties that tick the boxes for this holy grail of property investing. So to round out today's podcast, remember, here's the keys. Do your homework. Don't buy on emotion. Buy based on strong fundamentals, build your dream team, and make sure you use independent research before you buy. And this is Phil Robertson from Philip Robertson Property saying, have a fabulous day and look forward to sharing more information next week with you. Take care and bye for now.